First, a reminder. This is one of the episodes that will be about a private home. People live there now, and if it needs to be said, we should respect their privacy. Which is not to say that we can't walk by and look at the house and think about the many years when other people lived there, all kinds of different people, with all kinds of dramas and history. But we shouldn't be creepy about it, that's all. Life goes on, be cool. And second, a warning. This episode will have some hard stuff in it, nothing graphic because that's not my thing. But there will be mentions of an attempted rape, a shooting, a sudden death, an animal that passes away unnaturally, and slavery and racism. If these are things that you are not interested in hearing about, go ahead and skip this one. Again, it's not particularly graphic, the details are at the PG level, but it is mentioned. And finally, I won't waste your time with apologies for the delay. Rest assured I am working on this in all my spare time. This is not falling by the wayside, it's more that there's just been not very much spare time. Stupid, time-consuming promotion, sick baby, the cathead fleas, etc. Anyway, I'm here now, and so are you. So let's talk about some history. I'm Angeline Smith, and this is Town. Let's do it. Two zero one nine Ensenal. It's a small house, Victorian. It was built in 1894. White. At least it's white now, with nine even steps that lead up to its front door. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms, large windows in the front, a short driveway, a little front yard. 1,167 square feet of house. It is so very, very similar to so very, very many other houses in this town. And it was chosen almost at random, which just goes to show that the houses that we all live in contain histories that go beyond us. We are just the caretakers of the present, because though we choose to ignore the fact most of the time, none of us will be here forever. And our stories and our dramas will be largely forgotten, for better or worse, in just a hundred years and often much less. So here are four stories about the little Victorian, 2019 Ensenal, so that its long-lost inhabitants may be remembered, for better or worse. It was a chilly Friday night in November, and Officer Lee Andrews was walking his beat in Oakland. A 31-year-old from Missouri with a wife and two young sons, he was heading up Market Street, where he was expecting to meet up with a fellow officer, a man named Sill. There had been a rash of house robberies lately, but he'd seen nothing particularly of note that night. A few people out walking, but it was, after all, a Friday night, just after midnight. To be more exact, it was the night of November 18th, 1898. It had just ticked over into the 19th, the time was 20 minutes after midnight, when in the formerly quiet night, eight shots suddenly rang out and the quiet was shattered. A Marine, a George Norman over in Oakland on a jaunt from Mare Island, would hear the shots from about a block and a half away on Clay Street. He would run to a call box to call the police station. Another, an Ohio man named Fowler who built houses for a living, he was closer. He would see the shooter run north across 7th Street before he was lost to the night. 
and a third, a Father Slavin, he was the clergyman of St. Mary's Parish. He would hear the shots, which were directly across from the clergy house where he had retired for the night. But he was slow to come to the door, and what happened outside, just a few yards away, would remain unseen to him. The policeman, young Lee Andrews from Missouri with the wife and the two young sons, he would hear the shots and he would race toward them, four blocks to the east, joined by his fellow officer Sill on the way. At the same time, from the east, an officer Hines was running west from Washington Street, with officer Nick Williams just behind him, from the block beyond, from Broadway. The four men would converge at the corner of 7th Street, at the edge of Jefferson Square, and the sight that would meet them would be a particularly unwelcome one. There, lying in a patch of grass at the corner of the park, lay Charles Edward Keyes, a police officer, seven years on the job from the neighboring town of Alameda, an arrest warrant sticking out of his pocket, two hats on the ground beside him, and still grasping a set of handcuffs. He had been shot twice. Keyes was still alive, but he would be given a grim forecast. Investigators would discover that all six chambers of his Smith & Wesson revolver had been emptied, but not one of his shots had found its mark, while conversely, both of the shots of his intended prisoner had made their way into Officer Keyes. The first would strike his left cheek an inch from his mouth, hitting his jawbone and passing into his neck and collarbone. Scary, yes. Gross, yes. But it would actually be the second wound that would be the more serious entering just above his fifth rib and piercing his right lung. And he might have been able to thank his clothing for the fact that he was even still alive, as an undercover Alameda policeman in the month of November in 1898, Keyes had been dressed in a heavy dark blue overcoat, a sack coat, a vest, a flannel, and a white shirt, which together is hardly a bulletproof vest, but still superior to, say, a t-shirt when talking about protection from bullet wounds. Initially, even with the multitude of layers of wool during those first two days, the doctors would give him up for lost. But on Monday, they began to nurse hopes of a recovery. And as he slowly began to recover, his story was revealed. Late on the evening of the 18th, while he had been staking out the Market Street apartment of the suspect, and just after relieving a fellow officer, it was an officer Brampton, or perhaps it was an officer Sill, depending on the account, Keyes had been there earlier, but needed to duck out for a late dinner, and had asked this passing officer to stick around until he got back. And Officer Brampton, or perhaps it was Officer Sill, had agreed. But almost immediately upon returning from his 11.30pm dinner, Keyes had spied a man stealing from doorway to doorway. The man was suspicious in every way, and so he had followed this sketchy stranger up the street. Until the man had reached the doorstep of the very house occupied by the suspect Keyes was staking out, and then he had hesitated there for a long bit, before eventually turning onto 6th Street, but immediately then peeping back around the fence, looking in all directions to see if anyone was following him. At that point, Keyes had decided that this was indeed his fellow, and so had followed him as he continued on to 7th Street, and then for another block before Keyes finally decided to catch up to him, and placing his hand on the man's shoulder, he said, I want you ready, I've got a warrant for you. In response, the suspicious doorway lurker had protested that Keyes was making a bluff, because that was apparently the hard talk that criminals made back then. But then Keyes had taken out his warrant, and at that the man had sort of acquiesced, while denying he was the man John Reddy. But still, he'd allowed himself to be led back up the street toward the park. 
at the park, however, there'd been a struggle, as Keyes had very suddenly and without warning decided that this would be the best time to handcuff his prisoner, to which the would-be prisoner took a very strong opposing stance. What's more, the handcuffs had been poorly aimed, apparently, and the sharp end of the cuffs had pierced the man in the neck, drawing a good deal of blood. And so the next thing Officer Keyes knew, he'd been shot in the jaw, and remembered very little after that. He remembered firing only two of the six emptied chambers of his gun. And as far as he'd been aware, the man had disappeared into the night, with the four policemen subsequently arriving at the scene, and then he'd been conveyed to the hospital. And side note here, if you are ever nursing the rather romantic illusion that you were born at the wrong time and should rightly be living in another era, especially one characterized by quality tailoring and a preoccupation with reading over video games, an illusion which admittedly was something I used to entertain back when I was roughly 10 and hadn't yet learned about 19th century dental practices or food safety standards yet. Well, you can also keep this passage from the newspaper story about the shooting in mind. Quote, Through all his suffering at the receiving hospital, Keyes did not lose consciousness and showed great fortitude under the painful operation to save his life. Dr. Stratton probed for the bullets, but up to this morning had not located them. The officer is said to have a good fighting chance for recovery unless blood poisoning or some other complications should set in. So, yes, poor Keyes would remain conscious, even as he was transported to the receiving hospital and the doctors subsequently rooted around in the poor man for the bullets, an activity they would continue to indulge in during the days to come. May I warn you unsuccessfully, no matter how many attempts they made. Indeed, those 19th century doctors were, if not particularly skillful or clean, because as a surgeon washing your hands was a trend still just gaining traction in the 1880s and 1890s, they were nonetheless tenacious. And again, a further side note here, it was a Hungarian doctor working in a maternity ward in the 1840s that made the link between fevers and death and the practice of hand washing by doctors. The doctors would do autopsies and then assist in the maternity ward without washing their hands, and then a bunch of women would die. And this one awesome Hungarian doctor noticed that the mortality rate on women who were assisted by midwives was much lower, and figured a good reason for that was that the midwives weren't sticking their hands into dead bodies just before assisting at births. So he made doctors wash their hands with chlorine, which made maternity deaths plummet. But then doctors got mad that it was implied that they were doing something wrong, and the awesome Hungarian doctor, whose name was Semmelweis, by the way, was subsequently ignored and discredited, because apparently it's worse to look bad than to kill patients through bad habits. Soon after that, Florence Nightingale would actually reach the same conclusion about handwashing and germs, and she would do better in public opinion. But still, the general message was ignored. And so there was indeed a very good chance that blood poisoning or other complications might set in for poor Officer Keyes. And especially because these surgeons were, as I said, quite tenacious, they wanted those bullets. They would continue to root around for them over the ensuing weeks, but once again, the bullets would never be removed. One would remain in Keyes' neck, the other in his chest which would not stop him from going on to live a fruitful and pretty impressive life in the years to come, more about that in a moment. But at the time, it was just him, in pretty severe pain and without much of a positive forecast for living, with the threat of infection hanging over him, and with his poor, devoted, but very stressed wife beside him, 
and their young children. There were four of them, a girl and three boys, being looked after by a neighbor. Keyes, despite his pain, would give account after account such as he could give to his superiors describing the night in question. Keyes was already a department favorite. He was highly esteemed by both his superior officers and the general public, and his boss, Chief Rogers, would call him one of the most efficient and careful men on the force, and an officer of marked judgment and courage. And so, the only problem was, in the light of such a resounding endorsement of efficiency and carefulness and esteem, and in the face of this very popular officer's heroic injury in the line of duty, well, the problem was that night in November, at the corner of Jefferson Square Park, that Officer Charles Edward Keyes had gotten the wrong man. He had been shot by a complete unknown. And far be it from me to perhaps surmise that Officer Keyes' midnight meal might have included a beer or two, or that he had been a bit hasty in presuming that any guy with a mustache caught skulking around the neighborhood was automatically John Reddy. I mean, think about it, it was 1898. He didn't have a photo. He had, at best, a vague description. And nonetheless, he was so committed to the idea that he'd just randomly caught the man he was looking for. Because here was a man with a mustache in the general neighborhood in a city of 67,000 people, so committed that he actually stabbed the man in the neck with handcuffs, despite the man telling him that he had the wrong guy, which in actuality he did, it was the wrong guy. But then that begs the question, who was the right guy? Who was he supposed to have caught? Well, for that, we need to go back. And that will, of course, take us to number 2019 Ensignal, two days earlier. The Shattucks were a family relatively new in town. Timothy and Adelia had moved to Alameda from the Sacramento area. Timothy had been a grocer from way back before the Civil War, back in Massachusetts and then in the Midwest. He and his first wife, Annie, had settled in Brownsville, California after the war and had a grocery store there. But after Annie passed away in 1880, the 50-year-old Timothy had promptly remarried to an 18-year-old Spitfire named Adelia Beaver. As one reporter would later say, despite her youthful age, the second Mrs. Shattuck was a woman of determined character. They promptly had four little girls, Elizabeth, Grace, Irene, and Eva and had moved to Alameda where Timothy would live in semi-retirement while his young wife opened a fruit shop a few doors down from their house. And so it was that on the afternoon of November 17th, 11-year-old Irene, the third of the Shattuck's four daughters, had left the family's little house, a little Victorian with its nine steps leading up to a front door, which opened onto 1,167 square feet of home. And she had gone to her school, which was then called Hate School, and is only now recently called Love School. She'd spent the day there, and then she'd walked the three and a half blocks down to the fruit store, which was on Chestnut, just south of Ensignal. There's still a grocery there now, if that gives you some continuity. It's definitely my kind of thing. I like when history doesn't disappear entirely. Anyway, Irene was helping out in the shop. This was a normal thing. It was just her, as her mother was out on errands. And it would not have been particularly alarming when the salesman stopped in. He was well known in the area, a man of about 40. His name was John Reddy, and he made deliveries of domestic items on consignment. He was familiar. Less comforting, however, would be the fact that he would be considerably drunk on this particular occasion. And even worse, he had noticed that the young girl had been left alone. 
And there is no equivocating here. He would attack her that afternoon with rape as his intention. And she, terrified, alone, just 11 years old, she fought him. She would scream out for Grace, who was her older sister by 16 months. And it was actually this action, this screaming for her sister, that had suddenly scared off the drunken would-be rapist. He had fled. And when Delia Shattuck returned later that evening, and found her frightened daughter Irene and had heard the story of what had happened, she would not hesitate. She would pee a kick-ass mama with a reaction that was anything but Victorian. That police would be notified, but more than that, Delia Shattuck would go to Judge Morris and she would tell him what had happened and then he would issue a warrant that very night. However, the police would not find him that night, although he went home. Apparently, they wouldn't connect the dots of man plus man's home address equals probable location. And Irene's mother, the woman of determined character, Delia Shattuck, well, she thought that was kind of messed up. So she went ahead and hatched her own plan. On Friday morning, the morning after the assault, she placed a call to the Chicago Clock Company, which she and everybody else in the area knew was the company he worked for and asked for John Reddy, but was told he was not there. Undefeated, she placed a good-sized order, but only for delivery by Mr. Reddy. And quite remarkably, Reddy showed up. He and another employee arrived at the fruit store in his wagon, only to be met by Mrs. Shattuck, who immediately grabbed him and began giving him hell, for lack of a better way to put it. Hitting him repeatedly, she attempted to hold on to him until she could call for the police. By her own account, she beat him as best she could but the startled salesman wrenched away from her. When she found Reddy had broken free, Mrs. Shattuck then adjusted her efforts, attempting to take down his horse instead. And so the desperate Reddy had abandoned his confused co-worker, Mr. Wheeler, his wagon, and his poor horse, escaping down San Jose Avenue. Per his later account, he made for the canal, what we would now call the estuary, walking to High Street and then along to the county road, which took him back to Oakland. This was back when everything west of Walnut Street, including Park Street, over to Fernside was still attached to Oakland, before it was all dug out and made into a waterway to allow ship passage, before Alameda was separated from Oakland and was made into an island. Reaching Oakland and eschewing his home, which was a second-floor apartment in the second building just south of 7th Street, on the west side of Market Street, three blocks from Jefferson Square Park. And side note here. All this description of his home as academic, the neighborhood is unrecognizable these days. There is no second building, there is no first building. Everything that was there could not be less there. There is a broad open street and a shell station, and it all lies under the shadow of the freeway overpass. But if you are trying to imagine the home, the stakeout, the walk down to the park on a dark night, I wish you luck, because your imagination needs to be very talented. That being said, however, Jefferson Square Park, that is still there. Although its context, its surrounding neighborhood has changed a great deal. Like the site of Reddy's former home, it is also now lying in the shadow of the freeway. To be exact, it's just below the freeway, at the point where the 980 branches off the 880 north. It's the part that's a little stressful, where there's a lot of traffic because there's a merge onto the highway at just the point where the two lanes are branching off. It's more than enough to distract you from the fact that just off to the side, just below you, there's a park. But it's there. There are basketball courts and a baseball field. It's not huge, just one square block. But nonetheless, it's a legit park, and it's been there for over a century. I'll admit it, I've never noticed it, but now I know. 
It's between 6th and 7th and MLK and Jefferson, and more than anything, it's really a testament to the cultural devastation wreaked by the construction of freeways through our poor urban neighborhoods during the mid-20th century. And that's actually a much bigger and sadder story than I can tackle in just an hour. But in a nutshell, it sucked. It disproportionately affected poor neighborhoods of color. It robbed them of their cohesion, history, and community. And if you're one of the lucky people who live in a neighborhood where you know your neighbors, you have barbecues together or block parties, think about what it would mean if a dozen houses in the middle of the block were suddenly torn out and a busy highway cut through. What that would do to your friendly conversations on the sidewalk. What that would do to your property value. But I already said this one is too big to address in the time that we have, but it does make me mad. And one last thing here while we're pausing. I'm sorry, but before we get back to the story proper, we can maybe have a short sketch of John Patrick Reddy himself. He was a bit of an unknown, a former shoemaker from Boston, married with a child, said to be illiterate, but still a fluent talker. He was five foot six, mustached, tanned from his hours outside with brown hair and eyes. An old accident had left the third finger of his right hand stiff and inflexible. He was, as I said, an agent for the Chicago Clock Company. This is a misnomer, really, as it actually seems to be a seller of a hodgepodge of items. Reddy would drive a wagon around Alameda selling clocks, rugs, lamps, curtains, furniture, and other various miscellany, all on the installment plan. And as for his face? Well, according to accounts, it was memorable, not easy to forget. A face to startle one in a lonely place on a dark night, as one person would put it. Certainly Irene Shattuck would remember it. Certainly it would have been a face to startle her. Certainly it would have been memorable. But at least that particular night, the night that Reddy was fleeing the police after assaulting young Irene, his unpleasantly memorable face would actually serve to help him. We'll get to that in a second. Anyway, back to Reddy. He skipped heading home after the drama of Mrs. Shattuck's ambush and instead took up a position in a recess of McDonough Theater, an impressive and large edifice now gone, which sat directly across the street from the Chicago Clock Company headquarters on 14th Street. His abandoned co-worker, Mr. Wheeler, having now returned with Reddy's wagon, spied him there and subsequently let him know that yes, indeedy, the police were after him and would be watching his home on Market Street. And at that, Reddy promptly fled to another co-worker's house, a Mr. Ross, a good ten blocks to the north. And from that point on, as it turned out, Reddy couldn't have come up with a more thoroughly corroborated alibi if he'd tried. It was a little miracle of witnesses and travel, all of which steadily took him away from the drama that would happen at the corner of Jefferson Square Park at 20 minutes past midnight. Reddy's co-worker, Ross, he wasn't home from work yet, so Reddy waited until he arrived, then joined the family for dinner, at which point he would explain that he might be in a bit of a jam, seeing as he had just recently tried to rape an 11-year-old. And following this would be a key item of his defense. After dinner, he borrowed his friend's razor and shaved off his mustache so as to make himself less recognizable. This was between 6.30 and 7.30 at night. And after having done this, his friend, Mr. Ross, would strongly urge him to surrender to the police repeatedly, strenuously, but Reddy had other dumber plans. And so Ross would walk with Reddy down to 14th and Harrison, and then 13th and Oak, and then continue talking until finally Ross would give Reddy $5 and wish him luck. 
Reddy boarded the very next train at 12th and Oak, a 7.30 bound for Hayward, after assuring Ross that he would give him his new address as soon as he knew it, so that, as he related to the police, Ross could go to Reddy's old house, which to recap was being staked out at the time, and ask Reddy's freshly abandoned wife, who was still recovering from the news that she was now a single mother because her ex was a would-be child rapist, ask her for her ex's razor so that Ross could send it to this idiot at his new abode. And yes, this was actually an arrangement Reddy asked of his friend, the sending of the razor, nothing else. I'm sure at this point, Ross was rethinking the whole friendship and definitely thinking he could have done something better with that $5 he'd thrown down. I mean, at the turn of the century, $5 could have bought you five men's dress shirts or five women's hats, either of which Mrs. Ross probably would have been psyched about. And if dress shirts or turn-of-the-century hats weren't your thing, well, it was also worth 35 pounds of bacon, which most people can't agree on. Surely 35 pounds of bacon was better than this guy's friendship. But anyway, the whole razor mailing plan would never actually come to fruition. Reddy reached San Leandro before he was told that though he'd bought a Hayward ticket, this particular car was not a through car and wouldn't be going all the way there. So he disembarked and spent the time waiting for his connection at a sporting saloon along the main road. He talked to the bartender and was able to describe him later. He had curly hair, and the curly-haired bartender would remember him in turn. He picked up the 9.30 connection and reached Hayward sometime between 10 and 10.15, went to a cheap hotel where he'd been waited on by what he suspected was a Portuguese man, and where he had a late supper of ham and eggs. He arose the next morning at 7 a.m. and took the freight train to San Jose, and then promptly got arrested. In the meantime, though, people were practically lined up to corroborate his alibi. The conductor on the train to San Jose would later verify the timeline like the curly-haired bartender in San Leandro. He'd also recognized Reddy. What's more, in that San Leandro bar, Charles Peterson's sporting house and saloon, not just the bartender, but Mr. Peterson himself had identified Reddy as having had several drinks starting about 9.15 p.m. And the man at the hotel where Reddy had stayed, the possible Portuguese? His name was Manuel Cardoza, and it would not just be him, but both he and his cook, J.C. Vargas, they would both identify Reddy as the man who ate dinner there at 10.30 p.m. and had then gone to bed. And as if there needed to be just yet another confirmation, another foolproof alibi element, Reddy would summon Cardoza an hour later for a glass of water in bed, and Cardoza would bring it to him, would see him in the bed at just about the same time that Officer Keyes was reassuming his post, maybe 15 minutes before Keyes first saw the suspicious stranger stealing from doorway to doorway, too many miles away to even entertain the notion that Reddy had jumped up out of bed and whisked himself away to inexplicably creep around his neighborhood after having regrown his shaved mustache. And more about that. Later, the paper would report that while on the lamb from the police, he had disguised himself in every possible way, which could be an overstatement, considering that most of his disguise efforts seemed to be consisting of shaving off his mustache and then calling himself John Sweet, for the half day that he was on the lam, rather than John Reddy. He was still wearing his usual hat, and even more, he had immediately joined his regular crowd of friends in San Jose. I mean, the authorities found him within two hours of looking, in the company of exactly the people they expected, in exactly the places they looked. 
Reddy was hardly a mastermind of disguise. Much, I should say now, would be made of that usual hat of his. Reddy regularly wore a black felt hat, a soft hat, as they called it. Indeed, he would be wearing it when he was arrested, and apparently this was an era when your hat was part of your look, it was part of your identity. And the hat that was found at the scene was a derby, mass-produced in San Francisco. Over 10,000 had been made and distributed for sale all over the state. And even more than that, there was the gun. Reddy did have a gun, a pistol, but he had loaned it several months before to the security officer at the Chicago Clock Company, and that good man, good albeit apparently undersupplied, testified that he still had it, all of which just seemed to tie up every loose end. Shockingly, Reddy had not shot Keyes. And so, meanwhile, poor Officer Keyes, still recovering back in the hospital, having already identified Reddy as his shooter, he was meanwhile being acquainted with alibi after alibi, his reaction to which seems to have been a kind of nonchalant, whoops. And a brief postscript here on Keyes before we move on from him. He would indeed recover, would live a long time. He died in 1950 at the ripe old age of 90, outliving all the major players, his own devoted wife Frances, the would-be rapist Reddy, the entire Shattuck family save for Grace, the sister that Irene had called out for. He would remain a police officer, would actually be back on the job amazingly quickly. He would pop up later a few more times. He would again make headlines a couple years later for using vulgar language against an irate woman leading her cows along a street in Alameda. She would apparently have been saying much worse things to him, and he was off duty, but nonetheless it made the papers. And then again in 1903 he caught the public's attention when he single-handedly took on five drunken Italian teamsters in town from San Francisco, at the corner by what's now Encinal Market. He fought them all off with his club, only a scratch on his hand to show for it. And so he would have some interesting stories, certainly for the grandchildren. The biggest one, of course, being that time he almost died when he was arresting that man, who turned out to not be the right man. And about that, well, perhaps one of the most important pieces of evidence had come from Keyes himself. He would never waver from his testimony that the man who shot him was mustached. While there were a half dozen witnesses to Reddy's mustachelessness as of six hours earlier. And so, who had that mustached man been? And to this, I must regretfully tell you, just as Keyes would have told his disappointed grandchildren, they would never actually find out who had done the shooting. After Reddy's alibi was proved beyond any reasonable doubt, at least for the shooting of Keyes, the consensus would become that the officer had inadvertently happened upon one of the burglars that had been preying on the neighborhood of late, that he had just been in the right, or wrong, depending on how you look at it, time and place, and had tried to arrest a man who had a substantial reason to resist, reason enough to shoot a policeman, or who knows, maybe he just didn't like being stabbed in the neck with handcuffs. It's safe to say at this point that we will never know. We do know that Officer Keyes was not in uniform. Again, he was in a nondescript, heavy, dark blue overcoat. A sack coat, a vest, a flannel, and a white shirt. This was not anything that would identify him specifically as a police officer. Neither was it clear that he had really identified himself properly to the stranger. But regardless, the shooter would go free. And Reddy would, in light of all the overwhelming alibi confirmations, be absolved of the shooting of Officer Keyes. But of course, there was another charge, of which even Reddy would admit that he was guilty. 
Officially, the charge would be attempting a criminal assault upon 11-year-old Irene Shattuck, a charge which reeks of the murkiness of a Victorian evasion. It would fall under California Penal Code 220, which is assault with intent to commit rape. This was a penal code enacted in 1872, and nowadays such a conviction would be punishable by up to six years in state prison. In late January of 1899, however, it would cause no small confusion among the 12 men who had been called to decide the case. They were, in case you want to hear their names and throw some shade in their direction, Jacob Frederick, P. McQuaid, P.S. Amenel, A.O. Perry, E.E. McVeigh, N.T. Boyle, Alex Milwain, G.W. Manuel, J. Duran, George W. Gordon, H. Houschild, and H. Bailey. And in front of those 12 men, and also a very crowded and curious courtroom, a now 12-year-old Irene was the first witness called, testifying, a situation which I can't even imagine, especially considering the outcome. The 12 men would deliberate for three hours before eventually asking for additional instructions as to whether the actual crime had to be proved in order for a conviction to be rendered. Though the papers had previously reported that the evidence against Reddy on this charge was very strong and to the point, the judge explained that proof of attempt alone was sufficient for conviction. I mean, the word attempt is in the charge name, so it seems that the question would have answered itself. But there would be little clarity for this group in the judge's answer. They would split down the middle, six for conviction and six for acquittal, and they were subsequently discharged. Reddy would go back before the judge the following week and plead guilty to a charge of simple assault, a substantial downgrade, and the judge sentenced him to three months in the county jail. And that was it. That was the end of it as far as the criminal justice system was concerned. But how much did that affect poor Irene? I don't know. We don't know what it did to her, if she relived it, if she purposefully forgot it, if it was something that she thought about or didn't. If she would have had a different life, been a different person if those experiences hadn't become enmeshed in her life. I can tell you that she wouldn't marry. She would remain with her mother, single, and dying relatively young, in 1926, which would have made her only 40. I don't know of what. I can deduce that she was brave, that she told her mother the truth of what had happened and her mother had been a badass and had pursued justice had gone after it herself when she didn't see it happening fast enough. Delia Shattuck had beat a man in the face and then tried to take down his horse because he'd gone after her daughter. And I know that Irene herself had been pretty badass, even when she was just 11. She testified in court in front of 12 men who would be divided, as even the sheriff and the police chief had testified that Reddy had said he was drunk at the time, that he didn't know if he'd done it. And how could it not be that the testimony of the two lawmen saying that he said he wasn't really responsible, how could that not be just about tantamount to them saying it themselves? And meanwhile, Reddy's lawyer, that guy, he actually said that the crime had been committed at the invitation of the victim. But even the papers of the time called foul on that one. In other words, one reporter wrote, he, a man of 40 years, had been led astray by a little child just past her 11th summer. Yeah, but no. And so the rest of the story, what there is of it. Irene would not marry, but she still had her mother. She still had Delia, she of the determined character. 
After the trial, still just a child, she would return to that little house, occupied by its little family, the house filled with her three sisters and their fierce mama and their old father. She would go to school and then return home to that house every day. After working at the fruit store, still. And one day, when she was 17, six years after all that drama, in 1904, her elderly father, while walking along a sidewalk in downtown San Francisco, that old father would fall down at age 73. He was in the habit of using two canes, and on that particular day, they would fail him. And he would fall, and that fall would cause his death, which would leave his 41-year-old wife widowed and his four daughters aged from 16 to 22 without a father. And so the family would have to move. They would move to Eagle Avenue to a house now gone, and then Alice Street, which was in Oakland. Four years after Timothy Shattuck's death, that's where they were living. Delia had given up the grocery business. She was instead running a boarding house along with her daughters. In 1910, they had four boarders, just enough to get by. In 1920, there would be five. In 1930, just two. It would always be close to the bone. There would always be daughters living with her, whether because of divorce or just, as in the case of Irene, because they stayed. Irene would die early, as I said, in 1926. Irene Ioni Shattuck had remained unmarried, had lived with her mother her entire adult life, helping with the boarders, and then would die at age 40, the causes of which I can't tell you. Her mother would die in 1935, one day after her 72nd birthday, her younger sister Eva in 1939, her older sister Elizabeth in 1948, and her other sister Grace, for whom she had called out when being attacked by John Reddy, which had scared him off. Grace would pass away in 1959 in Alameda. And that is the end of their story, but not the end of the story of the house. Mishap number two, September 1906. He had worked two years past the age limit for a railroad engineer, which was 70, back in 1906. Originally a New Hampshire man of medium height and sturdy build, he had started working for the railroad back in Ohio, worked there for 26 years for the Michigan and Lakeshore Southern before coming out to California for another quarter decade on the job, but now on the Southern Pacific line. There had been a first wife, a woman named Maria from Massachusetts, and two daughters. It's a little unclear what happened to them, but sometime, somewhere, they fell by the wayside, and by the time he arrived in California, he had a new wife, Mary, born and raised in Ohio about the same age as his older daughter, wherever she was. They would move from place to place out here, San Luis Obispo, Santa Cruz, Aptos, homes that were dotted along the train line between San Francisco and Santa Barbara, before finally, his hair graying and his steps slowing, they settled in an Alameda. A house had opened up in late 1904, after an elderly man who lived there had taken a spill while walking on a sidewalk in San Francisco, and he had passed away leaving his young wife, who was a real tartar, and four daughters, one of whom had already been through more than a girl should leaving them behind to try to find some new way to get by, some new semblance of a life. And so the widow and her daughters had moved out of the little house on Ensignal, and the railroad engineer, who had finally consented to retire, moved in with his own young wife, Mary. He meant to enjoy retirement. Here at last was a sunny street, crisscrossed with streetcars, but still away from the thundering big engines and the soot. And it was a sweet little home, with more than enough room for the two of them, as opposed to the half-dozen people that had been jammed into it previously. But retirement can be boring. And perhaps he had suspected this, and that's why he put it off. 
But the days stretched and he missed sitting up in the cab of a locomotive, and so in the early fall of 1906 he bought a car, a light runabout, which would take some getting to know. These were still the early days when the cars being produced would nowadays evoke such words as rickety, maybe, or bouncy. They demanded tinkering. They were tricky and interesting and novel. It would be enough to occupy his attention and fill his time. And so, one Wednesday evening, just after he'd bought the car, he took a drive over to Oakland to pay a social call and show it off, and then he drove back home, where the rickety little car would drop into a rut in the little front yard as he attempted to pull it in beside the house. There would be no one around to assist him, only a small neighbor boy sat curiously watching the troubles of the interesting and novel new car and its new owner. But despite the lack of help, the old engine runner, accustomed to doing the hard work himself, though he was 72 now, he got out, and he attempted to lift the wheel back up to level ground, all on his own. But the years had caught up to him, at least they had caught up to his heart, and Charles Steele, the erstwhile railroad engineer who had come to Alameda to retire, instead expired. And once again, after the funeral which took place in that little house that was supposed to be the place where they would finally settle down, a young widow moved out and started again. And so the house would have to start again, too. Mishap number three. There's a gap here. The records that usually tell me who lived where and when, they have deserted me. I know that Charles Steele's wife, the young Mary, she held his funeral at 2 p.m. on a Friday, two days after he had collapsed outside their home next to the little car. He was taken to the mortuary and then brought back to their home and then taken away again after the funeral. And then she had gathered their things and she had taken herself away, but not very far. She had moved a block down Ensignal to what was called the Grocer's Building. It's still there. It's a long building of businesses below and living quarters above. The door to what was once her apartment is now between a salon and a lamp store. She would run a dry goods store of her own in the same building, selling notions, as they were known at the time, which is another way of saying sewing supplies, buttons, snaps, needles, thread, pins, seam rippers. She would enjoy, if that's the right word, a steady decline over the next decade moving from one residence to the next, one store location to the next, first to Telegraph Avenue in Oakland, then to East 14th, which is now International. There's a cheap clothing store where her last store once was. She died in January of 1918 in Oakland, $200 in debt. Her sister would assume the debt, and that would be that. But like I said, there is a gap for the house. There are no stories, no records I could find of any inhabitants of the little house on Ensignal in that decade after Mary left, while she quietly declined in circumstance. The census takers' records from 1910, meticulously handwritten, they skip from the Hickerson family at 2017 Ensignal to the Curdell family at 2021 Ensignal, as if 2019 simply didn't exist. And so we will skip ahead to 1920, when I do know a little bit more. The Hickersons were still at 2017, and the Curdells were still at 2021, but now a family lived between them at 2019. And this time, it was not an old man and his young wife, but rather a middle-aged man, at least for the time, named William Hoover. He was 36 and a blacksmith, married to Mary, who worked as a maid. And they lived there with William's older brother named Walter, who was over 20 years older, and a bolter at the shipyard, 
and their sister Ella, who was fifty and a widow, and a twenty-year-old niece who was the namesake of her grandmother Sylvia, who was eighty, widowed, and who also lived there. Gone, apparently, was the space enjoyed by Charles and Mary Steele, who had alone inhabited the same space now shared by six adults. And time passed. William got a new job, less strenuous than blacksmithing. It was a good job, especially because now the Depression was happening, and you couldn't count on jobs anymore. And this one was in San Francisco, working as a shipping clerk for a typewriter company. William would work there for decades to come. His wife Mary still worked as a maid, although now they had a little son, Merrill, toddling around. Sister Ella and niece Sylvia would move out, but brother Walter stuck around, as with their mother Sylvia, and another sister, Rosie, would move in. So what's the head count there now? Five adults and one toddler, if my math is right. And so you can imagine the noises of that little house with all those people in the midst of the night, the snoring, the shuffling to the kitchen for water, the cries of a small child who was teething, the need to attend to an aging mother who was now 90. The Hoovers of 2019 Ensignal did not own a radio, but don't think for a moment that their house would have ever been truly quiet. And yet, in the midst of all those domestic noises, one night in August of 1932, this was just at the point that the Great Depression was descending into its very darkest period, already three years in, every month seemingly worse than the last. When the dust storms were just starting to roll through the southern plains, the soil blowing as far east as Washington DC and New York City, and the banks were continuing to fail, and FDR's New Deal was still a half year, a very long half year away. Hell, it was still election season. FDR would not even be elected for another two and a half months. And the repeal of prohibition wasn't even in longer 16 months in the future. And against that backdrop, with a good job, but who knew at the time how long the typewriter company would be able to hold out against such a depression. Against that backdrop, William Hoover took himself to bed one night in August of 1932, only to be woken up at 3.30 in the morning, his sleep disturbed by a persistent noise coming from next door. It was Skippy. The Cradells next door at 2021 had gotten the little dog less than a year before. A puppy, really, just 10 months old. Skippy was a Boston Terrier that belonged to Miss Genevieve Cradell, a 32-year-old bank stenographer, and her older brother Leslie, called L.R., who was the manager of a shipping company and whose pinched lips and round glasses did little to recommend him as much of a good time. Both single, they came from a family who had long made their home in Alameda, the Curdells. That's all the Curdells, because this was back when Leslie and Genevieve's parents were still alive, had moved into 2021 Ensignal around the same time that the retired railroad man, Charles Steele, and his wife had moved into 2019 next door. But the Curdells would be much more successful in establishing their roots and not keeling over in the driveway. That being said, by 1932, both their parents had indeed died, and so it was just Genevieve and Leslie and an elderly aunt, a quote-unquote spinster, named Agnes, who had been living with the family since before they'd been born. And, of course, little Skippy, who was now barking, disturbing the sleep of the very tired William Hoover next door, already surrounded by his family and their noises. William, now roused, would also notice something else alarming. More than the persistent barking, more worrisome in every way, actually, and that was the smell of smoke. 
He rose and went out the front door, looked out across the little lawn where Charles Steele had met his demise next to a rickety new automobile, and saw... nothing. Everything seemed still, even little Skippy had fallen silent. And so William returned to bed, only to lay his head down on the pillow and once again hear the barking. This time, William went out the back door and promptly discovered the rear of the Curdell house engulfed in flames. Rushing next door, he pounded on the Curdell's front door, but he achieved the same result as poor Skippy. The three Curdells were persistently, stubbornly asleep. And so William ran the two blocks down the street to the fire alarm call box, which alerted the fire department, who would break down the front door with their axes and save the three Curdells, who were fine, but still asleep. The flames, which had been started by an electric iron which had been left on all night, and which would completely destroy the kitchen and the rear portion of the house, had just started to burn the bedroom doors. Not all of the occupants would be so lucky. The one fatality, the martyr as the papers would dub him, would be Skippy, who had been in a room between the bedrooms and the fire and who would succumb to the smoke, but still be dubbed a hero, his memory celebrated. Skippy is dead. Long live the Curdells. Mishap number four. This last is perhaps more the story of a misnomer than a mishap, and I should begin it by telling you I left something out of the previous story, and it is about the Hoovers. William, who had responded to little Skippy's barks, and his wife, his brother, his sister, his son, and his mother. And this thing that I didn't mention was that he, they, were black. In a sea of white people, literally the occupants of the two houses on Ensignal, the Hoover family at 2019, and the neighbors on the other side, not the fire-surviving Curdells, but the family at 2017, these two families, both listed as mulatto on records at the time, which was 1930, constituted almost the entirety of the black neighborhood of District 11, an area comprising over 1,500 people in that central area of town. Of those 1,500, there were a total of 16 black residents in four homes, the two neighboring houses, and then William Hoover's brother, Benjamin Hoover, and his wife a block away, and the Lewis family, with whom Benjamin and his missus shared the building. And that was it. But we're about to go down a little rabbit hole. This would be about race in Alameda. Because, for the record, the population of Alameda in 1930 was 64,430 people. All but 1,345 of those 64,000 and change were white. Mexicans, Filipinos, Chinese, Indians, they together accounted for just 235 people. Then there were 820 Japanese residents, which meant that there were 290 black people here. Although even that is kind of a shaky number, it all depends on definitions, on what you consider black, and believe me, even as I'm spelling this out, it seems so impossible, Im unproductive. I'm not sure what the right word is to try to pick apart the racial breakdown of every resident. But perhaps it's worth dipping into just because it demonstrates how murky race delineation was even then. There were mixed race marriages then. White people, black people, Japanese people, Mexican people, and saying a person is one thing over another, how do you decide? 
and the census takers who had gone through the 26 separate districts in town, they were all humans with unique handwriting and neatness and opinions. And so if you go back through the actual paperwork, you see the confused humanity that determines the records. In one district, a marriage between a white man and a Mexican woman produces white offspring. These are their definitions, according to the census taker. In another district, the marriage between a white man and a Japanese woman produces Japanese offspring, and so forth. And Portuguese immigrants apparently caused all kinds of confusion. At least one-third of the people written down as black in Alameda in 1930 were Portuguese immigrants. And there's this huge trend where from district to district, census takers simply did not know how to classify the Portuguese. They were listed as black, negro, white, or Portuguese. More than half the time what was first listed was subsequently crossed out and changed to white. And while I want to fully recognize the terrible toll that racism has had on so many lives, it is 100% real right now. It is an ongoing canker, and our entire society is in need of a good overhaul. But here I want to say that the fact that the census takers couldn't even agree upon their own definitions of what makes who what just seems to emphasize that race, despite all the shades of our skin, is in many ways a gray zone. And the definition of who was what color back in 1930 in Alameda in many cases depended on the fickle and personal interpretation of the particular census taker who drew your neighborhood. And side note, if you've been wondering if I know how to have a good time, like if I know how to really cut loose and party, well, you've never seen me going line by line through the 881 handwritten and occasionally extremely unintelligible pages of the 1930 census, meticulously checking the race of every single inhabitant of my town as it was occupied 90 years ago. I mean, I don't think you're able to hang with me, to be honest. It is a lot of living going on here, so try to keep up. Anyway, the Hoovers had come out to Alameda from Mississippi in the early teens. Back in the 19th century, the Hoover family had been slaves. They had been legally owned by the Buck family, who had a cotton plantation near Jackson, Tennessee, before moving to Lexington, Mississippi in the 1840s. The Bucks were wealthy, with real estate valued at over $12,000. That's a little under $400,000 now, which doesn't get you much in the Bay Area, but take a look at any real estate listing in Lexington even now. $375,000 will get you a three-bedroom house and 80 acres of land to go with it. For another $50,000, you can get a five-bedroom, four-bathroom house with 97 acres and... Holy crap, really? Anyway... They would be the third richest family in the county, and yes, I did go line by line through that census as well. At the start of the Civil War, Mr. U.H. Buck had claimed 27 slaves, 15 of whom were under the age of 18. The Civil War would affect the Bucks. Ten years later, his estate would be valued at less than half that previous amount, and he would be employing just one domestic servant. But... Though the Emancipation Proclamation had been enacted three years previous and the end of the war more than a year before, an 1866 community census is a revealing indicator of just where things actually stood, despite the freeing of his slaves. There would be 30 freedmen, free negroes, and mulattoes, quote-unquote, listed under U.H. Buck's name, like indented. 
as had been the case in previous national censuses, they would not actually be listed by their own names, but only by sex and age under his name. And this fact that they were not listed under their own accounts, but rather as unnamed occupants of his estate, exactly the same as had been the case in 1860, before the war. This indicates as much as anything the lack of change that had actually been accomplished in Lexington, Mississippi in the late 1860s. But anyway, I mention all this about the Bucks, because as it turns out, it is part of the history of 2019 Encinal. Because Sylvia, the mother of William, who had in 1932 been awakened by the little barking dog Skippy while the rest of his family slept, and had then run two blocks down the street to pull the fire alarm, that same Sylvia, his mother, who had also been living in the house at the time and who had slept through the fire next door, she had been one of those unnamed slaves who had belonged to U.H. Buck. Indeed, she would gain a certain amount of fame about it. She would be the world's oldest living slave. Or maybe not. The stories would start popping up in the early 1930s, just two years after the fire next door. 107 years old, once a slave, read the headline of the first one. And then it went on. Alameda's oldest citizen, Sylvia Hoover, old-time slave, who can recall the Civil War and the invasion of Grant's forces into the South, has just passed her 107th birthday at her home at 2019 Encinal Avenue. The story continued, briefly describing her life, her family, how she had been separated from her husband during the war, just a year after their marriage, and how she had later been reunited with him, how she and her son had come to California in 1902. It was an immensely interesting story. It also had some issues. First, not to nitpick, but they had actually come to Alameda in their early teens, fully ten years after the story had said, but whatever about that, that didn't really matter. More interestingly, if one was to go back to 1920, to the record-keeping at that point, Sylvia had been just 80 years old, which meant that she had somehow aged 27 years over the course of 14. Subsequent stories would describe her age, her memories, her varying numbers of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and this, like her age, seems to have been very much a number picked out of the ether. In 1934, she would have 37 grandchildren, two years later it would sink to 32, and five years later to 24 grandchildren. The number of great-grandchildren would also jump around from 52 to 58 to 53 to 44 to 79 all over the period of just six years. And none of this is meant to disrespect her or her family, but maybe more to call out the fact-checking standards of 1930s journalism. Because, for goodness sake, did no one question that her youngest child was 56 in 1940? Which, if her reported age was correct, would have made her nearly 60 when he was born. The same journalist that wrote that her son was 56 also, apparently without irony or curiosity, said that she was 114, but very likely a good number of years older than that. Some math, please, sir. And, side note, the oldest verified woman to conceive naturally was actually an English woman named Dawn Brooke. She would give birth at age 59 in 1997. So yes, it's happened, but to be blunt, no, it did not happen to Sylvia Hoover. And so here is her actual story. 
as close as I can tell. She had probably been born in 1838, which, to save you the math, would have made her 102 in 1940, not 114. Which is really no less impressive. The life expectancy of a woman in the US that year was 65, which was still better than a man who could only expect 60 years of mostly joyless labor and probably about two days worth of accumulated downtime. Plus you had to wear a hat, like, all the time. Sylvia Buck had worked first as a slave and then after the war as a quote-unquote employee at $5 a month under what amounted to be slave conditions, still for the Buck family. She would be a maid to the wife of the family and then a nursemaid for the children. Her mother had been the cook back when Sylvia was a child and her father, well, Sylvia would never actually know who her father was, which to be honest, makes it pretty likely to be one of the Bucks themselves. There were four sons in the Buck family, and Sylvia and her children were extremely light-skinned. And let's be real here, slave owner, slave rape was very, very common. She would marry Benjamin Hoover, who was about 15 years older at some point in the late 1850s. They would be separated, although not for as long as most of the newspapers would report. Her children would be born at regular intervals throughout the ensuing years in 1860 and 1862, 66, 67, 69. And she would remember the Civil War firsthand. At the close of the war, a battle would rage its way to the Buck Plantation. As an old woman, she could still describe it. The way the skirmishes came up, the dusty, winding road that led to the house. The Yankee raiders that were looking for provisions and cattle for their troops. The way she and the other slaves had tried to hastily hide the produce, and the way the soldiers had found it, and then rode away with it, leaving them with nothing to eat. And as near as I can find out, she was talking about the Indiana 7th Cavalry, and this would have been just after New Year's in 1865. The Indiana 7th Cavalry were on a month-long expedition to destroy the railroad in the area. That regiment would lose 294 men, 48 in battle, 246 to disease, in case you were curious. And that was more common than not. Anyway, after the war, Benjamin and Sylvia would make their home in Richland, Mississippi, and it was at this point that the record-keeping on them and their ages was probably most accurate. In 1870, Benjamin would be documented as being 49 years old, while Sylvia was 32 with five children ranging from six months all the way up to 10 years, and these ages, these relationships, would stay consistent for the next few decades. It would only be in the last 10 years of her life that her age would suddenly and mysteriously accelerate. And one other thing about these years with Benjamin, they would be noteworthy. Because Benjamin, at least according to Sylvia, and we have to take her word for it because the papers didn't report it, Benjamin would be a man of note. He would eventually own over a hundred acres of cotton farming land, and also become a justice of the peace and a supervisor for Holmes County. But also, maybe he didn't. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe there was something in the middle. In the 1900 census, two years before his death, he was listed as a farmer, listed as not being able to read or write. But once again, how much of this was because of the census taker? Honestly, it's just brutal. You can't trust anything in the records of the post-war South. Could he read or not? Did he just not want to say? 
Was she born in May, as she said in 1900, or was it just a month randomly picked? And the answer is probably, maybe, yeah. She didn't know, and so neither do we. But to finish out this half story, Benjamin would pass away in 1902, and Sylvia and the family would carry on in Mississippi for a while, until, as she would later recount, they were inspired to come out to California by her son Will's old horse Topsy. Will and Topsy got tired of the constant floods along the Mississippi, so Will sold the horse and used the money to buy a ticket, and the rest of the family followed. And this actually holds water, if you'll excuse the expression. The family appears to have started coming out sometime between 1911 and 1914. And further supporting this timeline, in Lexington, Mississippi, in 1911, there was a monstrous flood, drowning all kinds of livestock, destroying crops, carrying lumber and debris all around the town, filling homes several feet high with water, and knocking out the electric light plant, the ice plant, the oil mill. The poorest were said to be especially affected, and of course, at the time in Mississippi, this included the black population. And so the Hoovers came to Alameda, and they stayed. I mean, the family is still in the area. Merrill Hoover, Sylvia Hoover's grandson, this was that little toddler who had been in the house of grown-ups, the little toddler who may have been disturbing his father's sleep well before the night when the house next door caught fire. That little toddler would grow up to be a jazz musician, a pianist, well-known in the Bay Area clubs, known for his understated elegance and subtlety. Witty and stylish, refined, quiet. He would play for Anita O'Day, for Eartha Kitt, for Benny Goodman. Mary Stallings, who sang with Count Basie Band, said he knew how to dress up what you were doing in a very subtle way, always playing the right thing at the right place at the right time. He listened. He knew when to stay out of my way, and he knew when to play something that would complete my thought at the time. And I don't know about you, but that sounds about like the best compliment you could get as an accompanist. He also accompanied women on a personal level. He married a good number of times, and the very last time to a Norwegian woman. He died in 2000, but she's still alive, working as a wardrobe consultant up in Novato. They had a son and a couple of daughters who all still live in the Bay Area. Just think about that, how close that history is. Their great-grandmother was a slave, and they're my age. They're not 90 or 100. But as to whether or not the papers were accurate back then in calling her the oldest slave, well, she was old. But probably not the oldest. To be honest, the oldest slave title would be a highly competitive field around that time. Newspaper stories recounting the tales of very old slaves were popular from the 1930s all the way up to the early 70s. Adeline Dade, supposedly born in 1853, lived until 1941, Eliza Moore until 1948, Teen Blackburn until 1951. In 1965, an amateur historian, A.P. Andrews, would visit Hattiesburg, Mississippi. There was a man there, uh, Sylvester McGee, who was claiming to be the oldest living slave. He had been born in 1841 by his own account, making him 124 or 130 when he died six years later in 1971. He probably wasn't. But possibly the very last former slave, uh, Peter Mills, said to be born in 1861, which would mean that he would not actually remember slavery per se, 
would die in Pittsburgh in 1972, and that would be the very end of it. And side note, just a comment about the fact that we can't verify these records, because in a time when geologist Charles Lyell was already laying down the principles of climate change, when Jules Verne was writing pretty accurately about traveling to space, when Bayer was already mass-producing aspirin and Heinz was making ketchup, in other words, a pretty recent time, Black history was being purposefully diminished and underdocumented to the point where it would largely depend on word of mouth and memory. And those memories could be faulty because of how little things changed after the war. A woman could remember having slave experiences only to find out that those memories happened in the 1870s. Because as a child, you would only have the sense of the situation, and so you would remember being enslaved. Because, honestly, you still were. And so who could say whether or not Sylvia Hoover was the oldest slave? But does it matter? She was crazy old. Within her, she had the memories of her long life, which was also linked to the terrible, sad, and complicated history of our country, which is also very much still with us. In the last few decades of her life, she attended the Methodist Church, she listened to the radio. She was still chopping kindling in 1914, she was still making quilts until the mid-30s. She didn't drink, didn't smoke. In the last few years of her life, her eyesight started to fail, and then her hearing. She still worried about the news of the world. Still assured the newspaper reporter who annually came out to document her advanced age that she would see him next year. And each year, astonishingly, she was right. Until she wasn't. Sylvia Buck Hoover died June 4, 1941. It had been a stomach ailment. She was anywhere between 103 and 116 years old. But regardless, she had been born as a slave, married as a slave. She had seen the Civil War. She had seen her husband achieve a role unheard of before the war. They'd owned land. He'd possibly held office. Her family had moved to California, where they'd definitely owned a house in a neighborhood of white people. Her son had saved the lives of three white people in a fire, and yet the dog would be branded the hero. Maybe this is worth noting, in that same story, not once did the reporter call out that this neighbor was black. And honestly, I don't know what it is about that particular aspect that makes me happy. It was just the story of a fire and of neighbors, and the reporter didn't think that skin color figured in. And to that I say, God, I hope that someday we can really get to a point where that is actually true. In the meantime, 2019 Encinal. It's still there. It's just a house. But are any houses just houses? I think there's a kind of DNA of our shared human history, good and bad, in every home. Some houses just have a little more drama. I'm Angeline Smith, and this has been Town. Keep well. I know it's been too long, but rest assured I'm plugging away. This project is still my focus, life has just been lifey lately. But there is still a lot more coming. Music for this episode was by Benjamin Bostick, Bruce Zimmerman, Ido Castro, and James Grant. I'll talk to you soon.